0: Welcome to the Gary Gallagher Law Hour. Attorney Gary Gallagher and his firm have represented thousands of Hawaii workers and families during more than 35 years practice throughout the islands. Whether helping countless workers exposed to asbestos unknowingly in their jobs, filing suit against gas companies for unfair local pricing, or representing the state of Hawaii and winning a settlement against big tobacco, the Gallagher Law Firm helps fight for consumer advocacy and fair play for the people of Hawaii. No ko pono on your behalf. Now, Gary and his team are here to take the mystery out of what they do and answer your legal questions. So here's the host of our show, Mike Buck and Hawaii attorney, Gary Gallagher.
1: Gary Gallagher is on the, on the road today. And many of you know, thank you for being a part of our program today and, and tuning in to listen. For the next hour, we're going to bring you up to speed on the latest things that are going on in the Gallagher Law Office. And sometimes we have to differentiate on the program between the Gallagher Law Office and the Gallagher Foundation. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the foundation. As you know, Gary has been very, very involved in checking out a bunch of people that have had traumatic Injuries, mostly brain injuries and head injuries, some to do with football and, and other sports, where you know, banging on the noggin is something that happens all the time. And after this uh, conference that was held a little while ago, uh, and we'll explain what that was in a minute, um, I do have uh, Clarice Kobashigawa here. She's an attorney with the firm, and she'll help it, it bridge that. Uh, we, all, we learned, or Gary learned, and, and the staff learned, the team learned, that there are lots and lots of people here in Hawaii that have a lot of expertise in the area of which there's a lot of concern these days, and uh, Clarice, maybe really quickly before we I introduce our special guest, you can tell us a little bit about. I don't. I don't want to say the surprise, but the the overwhelming response you all had uh, at this conference. What was the conference?
2: Right, Mike. So going back to the CTE conference that we had at the end of January mm-hmm. of this year, um, which was in conjunction with the second annual NeuroHuddle, It was such a fantastic event, and. Um, Rightly held at the Queens Medical Center Auditorium. Yeah, which
1: point. is uh, why we're going to learn We our guests. But what I thought was also interesting is, although in the very beginning, Gary was interested in, in, in gathering some information on how to diagnose a certain thing. But then it turns out that there's all kinds of interrelated stuff. So the response to, for this second neural huddle, which I love, uh, was was overwhelming right
2: absolutely i mean with the physical therapists there i mean i'm sorry the the um athletic trainers Mm -hmm. and the doctors um the um i think there were some psychologists also in attendance yeah i mean
1: it was like who go figure all of these related fields Mm -hmm. now maybe at the next one uh you're gonna you're gonna meet our our guest on this on this program uh dr matthew koenig he's a, a he's at the queen's medical center and he's director of telehealth we'll learn about that a little later but it's sort of interesting because neurocritical care is something that he's involved with. And I, I don't think, first of all, uh, Dr. Koenig, welcome to the program. And thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me on the show. A pleasure.
1: Um, and, you know, I do know nowadays that, that people entering the field of medicine, they will sort of be predetermined or preselected. This is what I want to specialize in. There are very few, you know, shingles out on the on the street anymore where it's come one, come all. Um, so, but you, they're, they're like the quarterbacks, right, the GPs. How, how did you get involved or specifically interested in the field that you've chosen?
3: Well, so uh, first of all, I'm a neurointensivist. Yeah. And, and I think the first question that that begs is, what, what is, is a, a neuro- neurointensivist? Yeah, it does. And right? I yeah. think there's, there's uh, a lot of people who don't really know what a neurointensivist is or the field of neurocritical care is a new concept to mm-hmm. a lot of people, especially in the public. And um, sometimes people ask me, like, how would I have a family member come and visit you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my usual answer is, you don't really want that. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you don't want yeah. to... Wanna... But,
1: but, but th- is that an indication, Doc, that you've chosen to take uh, patients that really require a tremendous amount of almost emergency care?
3: That's right. We really subspecialize in patients who are critically ill because of injuries to the brain and spinal mm-hmm. cord. Wow. And those can be traumatic injuries, like traumatic brain injuries, um, as the, the CTE conference, cr- chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's CTE, was focused on traumatic brain injuries and also non-traumatic brain injuries like stroke is is, is the second most common uh, patient population that we really specialize in treating. Okay,
1: you know what? All automatic when the minute you talk about a specialty, when you say how do you get to you, and you say you don't really want to do that. Um, let's talk about the I guess the diagnostics that are used no matter where they are, whether it's an, an emergency room or at a family doctor's thing, to sort of start a trailer or a track on somebody on what
3: might be wrong with them. Well, the, most of the patients that we get uh, come in through the emergency room, mm-hmm. or they come in as uh, referrals from other hospitals. At Queens, uh, we're we're the really the only comprehensive stroke center sure. in, the, in the state, and 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 the only uh, major trauma center in the state. And so, if there are patients who have bad strokes that need critical care, or traumatic brain injuries, you know, we are really the intensive care unit that focuses on treating those patients. What,
1: what about people that are out there listening and, and really don't know the difference between a stroke and a heart attack, you know? And a lot of people think one, one and two are the same. Um... If you're going to get one, which is a better one to get? or And more importantly, what are some of the things that differentiate the the, the, symptoms, the signs of which, what, what it could possibly
3: be? Did I give you that question? No, no, no. Thanks, no, no. thanks just, for asking that's that's that question. That's just right out of my question <laughs> bag, you know? Yeah. That's a great question yeah. because they're really, you know, and I'm joking because there really are a lot of misconceptions about sure. what a stroke is and how is it different from a heart attack. And so a stroke is a blockage of blood flow to the brain. Mm-hmm. It's usually caused by a blood clot that forms somewhere in the heart or the large blood vessels that that send blood flow to the brain. And then it's carried along the bloodstream and it lodges in the blood vessel and it blocks blood flow Mm -hmm. to the brain. The brain really doesn't have any energy store at all. And so it really doesn't tolerate a lack of blood flow for any period of time. Mm -hmm. And permanent injury starts to set in within minutes.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that is really scary because you say permanent. Uh, Those of us that have had in our family, somebody that's had a stroke, it's rare that somebody gets away from a stroke with no after effects. You know, you almost say somebody loses a little something or done something like that. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is
3: it's kind of, is, is it irreversible, the damage done by a stroke? It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the word stroke really refers to, to part of the brain dying. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. And yeah. an absence of blood flow to that part of the brain, and that part of the brain dies and is permanently injured and leaves a scar behind.
1: You know, we're pretty gifted uh, to, to adapt to needs. I mean, if somebody hurts themselves, they use a cane or they use a wheelchair or something. Um, are there things up there <laughs> that can be used to, to sort of circumvent the part that got hurt and still be f- able to function?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The brain um, has a function that we call plasticity, which means that there's parts of the brain that can take over the functions that were lost due to that permanent injury. mm mm-hmm. And so structurally, the brain is permanently injured with a stroke. That's the, by definition. The definition of stroke yeah. really means that there's a permanent injury to the tissue that you can see. You know, If you get a CAT scan years later, you'll still be able to see that stroke that occurred.
1: Yeah, that, that's, I, I find that fascinating, uh, only because I guess it leaves an indelible mark. And maybe to the, to the acute practitioner, you can say, well, that's what happened, and this is when it happened, probably.
3: Right. That's right. Wow. But you know, st- just because structurally there's an injury to the brain that's permanent doesn't mean that functionally the patient mm-hmm. will have no recovery. Most patients do recover to some extent after a stroke.
1: Yeah, and you know, in, let's go for the good news. I mean, the good news is, I guess, if you're fortunate enough to be able to sort of figure out what's happening or somebody is, and if you get to care right away, from what I understand, the quicker you get somebody that even may be suffering a stroke, it, you're better than having them come into an ER and be given a candy bar and go home than, than to wait until somebody's collapsed.
3: That's absolutely right, and, and time is of the essence, and we use the phrase, time is brain. Yeah, and, wow. Yeah. And and to kind of put a number on that, if you block one of the major blood vessels to the brain, you lose 1.9 million neurons every minute. The neurons are the brain cells, and so you, you permanently lose 1.9 million brain cells every minute that that blood vessel okay, is now, blocked.
1: Okay, now, me being a, a neophyte, I think that's like really a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounds lot. like it's a lot, yeah.
3: I mean, you have you know you have hundreds of millions of, of brain cells, mm-hmm. but that's still a large number. Sure.
1: Um, let's talk about what good news there is. I do know that there's been a lot of there's is, there's some really good rehab going on. I know at Queen specifically, you guys have a number of ways to you know not only triage somebody but but get them on the road to either acceptance or recovery. Um, uh, is, has, how is technology helping you with that? And we'll talk about another phase of technology later, but. Gee, the, the, the diagnostics that you have now must be so much better than they used to be.
3: Well, not just the diagnostics, but the treatment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, stroke used to be considered a non-treatable disease. Uh, you would diagnose, and then the, the treatment was rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And that's really not the case anymore. Um, there's now two treatments that are recognized as standards of care. One is a medication called TPA. Okay. Um, it's a clot-buster medicine. It's been on the market since 1997, so we're mm-hmm. almost at 20 years, actually, of TPA. So
1: pretty good studies on the results. You know, I get a kick. I'm sure you've heard this a million times by other lay people like me. Uh, at night now, when you're watching television, every now and again, every breakfast, there's some medicine. And for 30 seconds, they tell you how great it is. And then for 90 seconds, they tell you, here are the things that might happen to you by taking this medicine.
3: sounds like this medicine's made it past that. That's right. I mean, there's a number of studies showing a good safety profile and that Mm. it's effective, and it's part of every guideline at this point. It's it's Mm. recognized as the standard of care. But despite that, only in the state of Hawaii in the last five years, only 5.5% of patients with strokes were treated with TPA. Wow. So almost 95% of people who had strokes in this state were not treated with tpa.
1: Who who besides a specialist like yourself would dispense it or administer it? I mean, is this going to be mainstream? Would would uh, would a, a family doctor have this medicine available to him?
3: It's really only in the emergency room of, mm-hmm. of hospitals, but yeah. every hospital, every acute care hospital in the state has tpa yeah. in, in their pharmacy. So
1: so the message is the the side message of today's Gallagher law or if you're if, Experiencing any of the symptoms that are going to give you a uh, summer or some beloved one is the quicker you get them into that the better
3: That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right.
1: What do you see? What, what do people mostly see coming? What are some of the uh, And I know we branched off from and we could talk hours on this But what are some of the things that might happen to somebody and to lead him? He or she to say hey, you know what this sounds like this feels like I might be having a stroke I better get to the doctor.
3: Yeah great question. So the memory tool that we use is called act fast Okay, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's F-A-S-T is the acronym to mm-hmm. remember, so act fast, and F stands for face, and that means droopiness on ah, one okay. side of the face, sure, yeah. crooked smile, mm-hmm. or droopiness of one side of the face. The A is arm, and that's weakness on one arm. Mm-hmm. It's important that stroke, for the most part, causes symptoms on one side of the yeah, body. Yeah, see, that's the
1: thing that I think probably a lot of listeners get that, because they've seen it in their families or not, um, is a is is preference. I mean, you know, when you're going to have a stroke, could it be either side? And Let's say that I'm right-handed. Please do it to my left if I'm going to have a stroke. You know what I'm saying? I mean, is, is there any way or is it some electronic thing that goes on? Who knows where it's going to end up?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, you don't get a choice of which side it yeah, is. Darn and, it. Yeah, darn it. Yeah. And, I mean, it is important which side, uh, which side is involved because people who are right-handed, and most, mm. most people are yeah. right-handed, so right-handed people, the left side of the brain is what we call the dominant side. and, mm-hmm. and it can, So the left side of the brain controls movement of the right side of the body and also controls language. Mm-hmm. And so that is a very common stroke um, syndrome that we see as people who come in with right-sided weakness and inability to communicate.
1: Over time, can, uh, can that person be trained to start maybe use the better part of their brain to do some of these functions?
3: It depends on how bad the stroke mm-hmm. is, and younger people uh, tend to do better than older people just because of that plasticity that we talked about. You know, and I learned
1: something from uh, Dr. Koenig a minute ago off the air, everybody, about stroke. I Automatically, it was like for people my age and older, and it's not true. It happens to a lot of people, and I do know that one of the things that Gary Gallagher was, is really, really interested in is some of the things that happen to athletes and others that have concussions, and I'm guessing that if a few bangs in the head doesn't matter when you get them are precursors to another problem or more.
3: It can be, and um, certainly patients who have uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or repeated head trauma mm-hmm. do actually. It's recognized now that they do have a, a higher incidence of stroke. Yeah in um, young people.
1: I'm, I'm guessing that what we're trying to avoid here is some people are going to do something no matter what, right? If they dangle a college football scholarship in front of a kid, kid's going to play football, not tell anybody when he gets hurt. But we might be able to say, okay, here are some of the areas that you better be, uh, uh, you know, watchful for. Do you see that happening? Uh, for instance, we've had some great trainers on our program, some athletic trainers that have this sidelined ability to take a look at a kid and say, hey, you know what? Let's get Tommy out of there. Let's take a look at this kid.
3: Right. And, and that's, you know, obviously a very important topic nationally and, and locally as well, is, is how do we clear kids, or not not even kids yeah, necessarily, yeah, professional yeah, yeah, athletes yeah. Or, or collegiate athletes, um, how do we clear them to return to, to, to play um, in the field after a head trauma?
1: You know, uh, it's sort of interesting because I'm guessing because of our multi-ethnicities, that this is a pretty good place to learn about ethnicity. And are some people more, more prone to get this kind of Condition or not, are we a a literally a, a plethora of, of of ways to learn about Ill, illness or injury?
3: Again, that's a great question to ask. You'd would, you'd would think I fed you these questions, but I get paid the, <laughs> I get paid the medium bucks to get to
1: ask these questions.
3: Um, <laughs> it's a question that's that's certainly relevant to stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and my colleague, uh, Dr. Nakagawa Kaz Nakagawa, he really specializes in looking at some of the ethnic and racial disparities. Mm-hmm that we see in the incidence of stroke and also outcomes of people with strokes. And certainly the, yeah. the, the, the risk of stroke is not distributed evenly among mm. among people in Hawaii. Sure. Um, uh, what I find interesting,
1: and maybe another thing you can clear up, is that this is an equal opportunity problem. It's men and women. I mean, a lot of times you think, well, Grandpa had a stroke, it's all, all a men. But I learned uh, through this program a couple of times ago in the NeuroHuddle show that we were doing, that the greater number, a lot of head injury and trauma comes to little girls and in judo and in gymnastics. So
3: are women as predisposed? Is it an equal opportunity problem? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly differences between genders in, mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, of the brain structurally and functionally, but when the brain is injured, especially with traumatic injuries to the brain, that's, that's definitely an equal opportunity mm-hmm. um, uh, problem. Is,
1: is the profession sort of... Uh, enthralled or intrigued with the, the, the circuitous route a lot of people go through in order to get injured like this. In other, in other words, how many things do you do during your life, more money, more money, more money, or more
3: more athlete, more athlete, more athlete, to set yourself up for a disaster, even if you think you're in good shape? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a cumulative problem. It's a cumulative problem, which means the sum and severity of injuries that the brain receives over a lifetime really uh, have an additive and probably multiplicative effect as well uh, to produce chronic traumatic yep. encephalopathy. Um,
1: what, what, what we've been concentrating on because of the neurohuddles and because of the, um, the f- huge amount of interest and additional expertise that, that Gallagher is, is, folks have found out that are available here in Hawaii, it seems like, oh, I, this is easy. We can fix just about everybody. I don't want to tr- trivialize... When you get a patient, you get a, you have a train wreck. I mean, you really need to do a lot of work. Maybe you can explain typically what happens when somebody gets out of an ambulance or a car at the ER.
3: Uh, well, it really depends on the nature of the injuries. But, you know, as a neurointensivist, I really see the worst of the worst mm-hmm. in my practice. So I see the patients with the most severe injuries. And those are generally not sports-related mm-hmm. traumas. I mean, we certainly have seen some bad sports-related traumas, but the majority are— what you would expect, which would be car accidents, sure. pedestrians struck by motor vehicles, is unfortunately very, very common in Hawaii. I, what
1: I was wondering is, is, is there any way to quantify uh, when you've had one of these traumatic experiences, what you brought to the game in the first place? In other words, what shape you were in when you got hit, how much did that you know, contribute to what your diagnosis is going to be? In other words, if you're a super healthy person that's never been hurt ever, and you get banged by a moped, you might make it if you're, rather than if you're an old person with a lot of issues?
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, mm. surprisingly, um, that's not always the case. A young mm. person with a, with a normal brain, mm-hmm. the brain is full size, is normal size, if it hasn't shrunken down with age the way um, we expect with normal aging, the skull is only so big, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so if the brain is, is, is normal and full-sized in a young person and has not shrunken as it would have been an aged, aged person, there's relatively little room for trauma. And so patients with relatively trivial swelling of the brain can really run into problems, um, young people, as opposed to an old person where the brain has shrunken some as part of the natural aging process. I
1: know that this, I I, I never try to submarine anybody with some question that's too hard to answer. But one one has to think, because you talked about it, if it's a kid, uh, at what point in time does the physical part of our brain bucket, our, our skull, stop? I mean, you know, if, uh, teenager, I mean, you, you know, you you see little babies with little heads and then you see
3: like me with a seven and a half. So at one point in time, my head must've stopped growing or my skull. Yeah, absolutely. So somewhere around age, between age 10 and 12, Okay, that's it. you know, the, the, yeah. the head is, and brain are, are full size Wow. or adult size.
1: Okay. Now, it, so, and what you're saying is for those that don't know later on, the bucket's the same size, but the stuff inside shrinks. That's right. Yeah, not the outside, the stuff right. inside, yeah. Are you more susceptible? Uh, I mean, does, does a vacuum or empty space up there cause problems?
3: That can cause its own set of problems, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, in some ways it sounds bad for your brain to shrink, right? That's yeah. probably not a good thing. You're, you're losing your reserve. No, but when
1: you do get older, it's okay if your stomach shrinks a little bit and some of your other parts, <laughs> and you, then you're allowed to get out of there. And that uh, that that also, um, everybody wants to know in this day and age, because when we talk to our trainers and we talk to our nutritionists, they tell you it's 50-50 between food and exercise. I'm wondering how many people, once once you've got them over the – the, the hump of this emergency room visit have to take a look at stuff like that uh, going forward.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with stroke, mm-hmm. there, there are definitely lifestyle choices that are risk factors for stroke, including diet and lifestyle.
1: Let's talk a little bit uh, about what would determine somebody needing surgery. When they get, you talk about somebody that's had been hurt. You know, if somebody gets a compound fracture of their leg uh, in an accident, they're they're in that ER, they're having surgery. Um, is I, I'm guessing that, you or somebody in your position that's going to have to undertake that. It's like very little prep time, not too much time to study this guy. So you've got to be able to be, you know, walking and talking at the same time as far as getting into doing something for this. What, what are some of the things physically you do to a patient that's had a traumatic injury?
3: Well, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but mm-hmm. i work very closely with the neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. I basically take care of, uh, do the post operative care for patients that neurosurgeons operate on for complex surgeries. Um, and so there are certainly patients with brain injuries that require emergency neurosurgical sure. procedures. Um, I think what, what is not well understood by the public in general is that if there's an injury to the brain itself, meaning if there's bruising and swelling mm-hmm. of the brain itself, there's not a whole lot of neurosurgeon can do um, because there, there are not a lot of cases where the brain itself is operated on. You yeah, know,
1: in, so in other words, it's not know. like water on the knee or something that you can take a syringe in there and take this fluid out.
3: Right. You'd, yeah, you'd, yeah. you'd have to remove that part of the brain that yeah. has the bruise. That would be the surgery to do. I'll pass. I'll, right. Right, up,
1: right up front, I'm going to pass on that procedure, right. I think.
3: Right. But, uh, but, there are, but there are surgical, you know, there certainly are cases where, uh, especially in traumatic brain injuries, where there's bleeding between the skull and the brain. Mm-hmm. We call that subdural hematoma or epidural hematoma. And that basically yeah. means that there's a collection of blood underneath the skull that's putting pressure on the brain. And those are patients who can do quite well if surgery is done quickly. Uh, it,
1: it is once again the emphasis on quickly. I, I think that what we're trying to differentiate, and this is so far what you're looking at in in critical immediate care. So uh, when somebody's come in with a bad injury and had a little had a, a procedure or treatment done, then it's your turn. In other words, you know, then it's okay. Now what are we going to do? Assess this this person's
3: mo- what motor movements, ability to speak. What do we do to test this guy or gal before we send him home? Right, We're really involved from the word go. So Mm -hmm. when the patient arrives in the emergency room, we uh, usually see the patient right away in the emergency room along with the trauma team. And we're part of the initial decision making about the medical management of trauma and involvement of the neurosurgeon and what procedures um, should be done or could Mm -hmm. be done. And then we, we really take the patient through the entire intensive care stay and do all the medical management for those patients.
1: Is there a typical length of stay here? I do know that in this day and age of insurance and everything else that a lot of times, hospitals are forced to you know, tell a patient that, you know, we've done all we can right now, we need this bed for this other guy, but here's what's gonna happen going forward?
3: Um, it really depends on the severity of injury. Mm-hmm. We, we've had patients who are in the intensive care unit for weeks mm-hmm. and sometimes even months. That's not yeah. we don't want that. I mean, no, nobody wants that. No. But, but um, we, we take care of patients as long as they need it. And that can be yeah. a long and, time. And, and,
1: you know, I want to go back for a minute in case you just joined in this. Dr. Matthew uh, Koenig is uh, at the Queens Medical Center. He's a director of telehealth, which we haven't even begun to talk about yet. But he's also the associate medical director of neurocritical care, which are we we are talking about. Uh, We'll talk about that some more. But I want to go back to what was happening uh, with Clarice Kobashigawa out of Gary Gallagher's office about this neuro huddle, Because I I can already tell that having a new asset like uh, Dr. Koenig and others that have been on the program, that what we're really looking at is there's a tremendous amount of expertise once somebody is diagnosed. So I know a lot of times in your office, people will get on the Internet and they'll diagnose themselves, then they'll call an attorney, right? And you say, wait a minute. We don't do this. You know, this is not what we're after. How, how does it happen that Gary, as an individual, and now you guys, because you're on his team, gets so involved in this? What's the trigger? What's making Gary so passionate about the, these helmet and and concussions and head injuries?
2: Gary has always just been so passionate about... Um, about people, uh, um, the the individual and their legal rights, and um, just always doing the right thing by those people, mm-hmm. those individuals who cannot stand up for themselves. So that's ha- that has always been a driving force with him, um, and so that is why we um, a lot of our cases or the scopes of um, practice that we tend to go into are um, have a very. Um, have a larger effect yeah. to the community. Yeah,
1: and that's kind of interesting. And, and that's, once again, uh, why Dr. Matthew Koenig is our guest today, because we're not telling you um, uh, we're going to triage you and you're going to call us up and, and get taken care of. But I think people would start to get a grasp of, gee, there's an awful lot of things that can go wrong with me. And maybe uh, getting online when I have a headache is not the best idea. I mean, uh, maybe sometimes there would be triggers. And I do know that you said with fast and and other things there are some really good games one can play to get ready for what's going to happen if mom or dad or me or somebody gets some of these symptoms
3: yeah absolutely and and i think there actually are a lot of really good resources on the Mm -hmm. internet and and other media Mm -hmm. sources to educate people about stroke because there's just not a lot of public awareness about it well and in hawaii you can't put up billboards yeah, yeah, no so... kidding. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> as much as as
1: there's there's a two a two pronged sword there, you know. Amber Alert is 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 the thing, but what about just plain old Body Alert? You know, are you having a stroke? I I, I guess maybe, and I certainly don't want to trivialize the importance of being treated and, and diagnosed, but it seems to me that there's there any number of things that can be misguessed by somebody that doesn't really know what they're doing. In other words, no, dad, you're not having a stroke. You've had, you know, too much pepto, not enough pepto-bismol. Let's talk about some of these early things that might, people might either misread or fail to
3: read. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think what's what's really most important is that people are able to recognize signs and symptoms of stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it differs from a heart attack in that a heart attack is painful, right? So if somebody's having chest yeah. pain, they go to, they seek medical attention. Yeah. Because they're, it's their pain. They're having pain. Yeah. People who have a stroke are having an injury to the brain. They're not thinking normally. The brain is not functioning normally. Yeah. And a lot of... Big difference. A lot yeah. of people who are having a stroke don't recognize that they're having a stroke because they're not mm-hmm. thinking right. Um, but, but but a
1: loved one or a teacher or a parent or a social worker or a church member or somebody else, if they know what to look for, they can say, you know what? I think Mike's having a stroke.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, we're, going, we're going into the classrooms yeah, and educating yeah, kids yeah. to recognize that their grandparents are having strokes. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's really where the public awareness piece is important.
1: You know, and that's kind of where we come in, uh, because Clarissa, I want to tell you that that what I'm learning here, and I'm sure that, you know, Dr. Koenig is is part of the uh, uh, the, the ammunition that can be used, this is exactly what we're looking for, right? I mean, what, what's going on with somebody that is a precursor of something's going on here?
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. We want um, the best of the best, and um, with these treaters here in Hawaii, we have really... Um, struck gold with mm. this conference and finding all of these different people that are connected together. People like Dr. Koenig, um, Dr. Horvath, who was on previously, mm-hmm. Cora Speck, also out of the Queen's Traumatic um, Prevention Unit. Um, but I was actually curious to know um, what SNT stands for because I think we went through F and A. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's part of the
3: fast. Yeah,
2: right.
1: Yeah. indeed. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for She's keeping track. She's an attorney,
3: that. See, she'll get right on. She won't let any of those details go. Uh, thanks for keeping yeah. track of that. Yeah, yeah. So. So as a recap, mm-hmm. the, the mnemonic or acronym is, is ACT FAST, mm-hmm. right? ACT, act fast. FAST. And F is face, so droopiness on one side mm-hmm. of the face. Uh, a is arm weakness, so weakness on one side of the body. Mm-hmm. Arm could be leg. S is speech problems, so either yeah. slurred speech or or garbled speech. Uh, and T is time to call 911. Gotcha. And now, that's are, really important. I was okay. going to say,
1: let's make sure that that should almost be – Let's go taffer or whatever. Let's put the T up in front. But but I'm thinking that maybe that you would get some rather than all. In other words, just when you're having a stroke, you're not going to necessarily be able to see all these, but some may be more, more retirement. Like if somebody says, you know, I couldn't, I picked up a chopsticks and my, my arm, my hands wasn't working. And then my arms sort of fell down by my side. Guess what? You got to get, you got to go somewhere.
3: That's time to call yeah, yeah, you 911. Know, yeah. That that symptom is time to call 911. So you're right. Yeah. It doesn't certainly doesn't have to be all three of those things, mm-hmm. but weakness on one side of the body, numbness on one side of the body, speech problems, vision changes, or problems in balance. Those are the big five symptoms that we yeah, see. Yeah, I was going to say, if
1: you've if you got a speech problem, you haven't had any beers, you know that you're not going to be able to blame it. I, 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 I'm a little tipsy. You know, uh, it, it is sort of interesting. That's why I said that, you know, here in Hawaii with so many different ethnicities and ways of speaking, you know, it may be somewhat harder to diagnose when somebody's got a speech problem <laughs> because we have so many different ways and words that we use. But I, I want to go back to something else. Um, this, last, uh, this last conference was held at Queens. And and I, I need to recognize Queens for realizing that a lot of the stuff that they do there is in front of somebody being in the hospital. In other words, there's as much prevention as there is cure. Let's talk about some of the key things that can happen with head trauma before it becomes a problem, before it becomes a stroke, or before it becomes you know uh, totally totally uh, injurious where you're where you're crippled.
3: Well, I think there's 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 key prevention um, points in in both traumatic brain injuries. You know, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy mm-hmm. or, or TBI, and also stroke. And so, to focus a little bit on traumatic injuries to the brain, I'm sure on this program you've talked about helmets and the importance a of lot, wearing helmets. A lot, a lot, yeah. and and even uh, on
1: your moped or on your bicycle or your skateboard or whatever, I mean, everybody's got to wear a helmet.
3: Absolutely, yeah. and I can't tell you how many uh, young people I've seen who have died yeah. uh, under my care from injuries to the brain that should not have been fatal.
1: How how um how awful is that? I I know that you know you're a young guy you're a specialist, uh, but um but you you choose to be in a, in a real you know emotional place where where this happens and I know there's no easy way out, uh and it, and it must be very very troubling to know if this kid had only had a helmet on even if it was a little toy helmet
3: it would have helped. Absolutely, yeah. it's it's very hard and you know people sometimes ask me like when does it get easier you know how far yeah. into your career is it where it doesn't affect you emotionally and, and the answer is that. It there isn't a yeah,
1: time. Yeah. 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 I think you'd have to be worried if it, if it became, you know, you know, boilerplate, matter of fact, everyday stuff. But I, I do know that what we're trying to do now, and this is the coaches are buying into it, trainers are buying into it. We use football because everybody knows football and everybody knows that, you know, your helmet used to be part of the battering ram. You know, you were told that helmet goes in that guy's chest. And, <laughs> you know, and, and now we're trying to wean ourselves off of that with things like maybe not wearing them in practice. And, and maybe not wearing them at all until game day, and maybe that people physically will tackle and do things differently because that helmet's no longer a weapon for them.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. perspective. Yeah. I really haven't heard that approach yet, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting perspective. Well,
1: coaches want to win football games, and they want you to knock the guy down that has the ball. But, you know, the way you choose to knock him down can, can have some ramifications. So I, I think that that's another reason why maybe people ought to understand when this conference was held at Queens, there were a lot of stakeholders that came there knowing not what the other specialists were involved in, just what they wanted to throw in, what they wanted to bring to the party. And you know what? Even though you weren't there, that helmet word came up day one. We got to wear helmets, and they got to be defensive rather than offensive.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay, so, but, you know, there's something else that you're involved in, and I want to skip forward a little bit because when in introduction to Dr. Koenig, I told you that he was the medical director of telehealth. And, you know, we are all – who. Who isn't uh, hooked up with some sort of a device? Who doesn't have their, their, their iPhone or their Android or their whatever just going all the time on this stuff? And wouldn't it be neat if you could actually get in touch with a physician or a hospital or an emergency room and have them look at your leg and say, you better come in here or this is what you got to do right now to stabilize? H- how is this developing? Is this, this technology, this telehealth stuff developing?
3: Well, there's a lot going on with telehealth right now, but nationally mm-hmm. and in the state and, and at Queens. Um,
1: Okay, wait, wait, wait. When you decided to become a doctor, this wasn't available.
3: No. You no, know, I mean, not. it might have been on the drawing boards, but it
1: certainly wasn't in practice. So the young guys are the guys that have probably embraced and used this
3: stuff. It was really just coming up when I mm-hmm. came out of medical school. Okay. So I, I, I graduated medical school. I'm going I'm to date myself here, but I, I graduated medical school in 2001. Yeah.
1: By the way, I had this information. I just chose not to give it to you earlier because <laughs> I thought Matt could do it himself. So 2001. So, you know, in, 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 the profession that you're in now and the, the speed of light at which technology has changed, you know, you're 15 years into your career. So, I mean, you, you're like a veteran. I mean, that's the bottom line is I know you deal with a lot of
3: surgeons and doctors that are considerably older, been in a long time, but they didn't have the stuff that you have. Right. I, and I, I sort of trained during the period where telemedicine was really mm-hmm. starting. And, I mean, just to take a step back and, t- and, and say, okay, I said, what is a neurointensivist? All right, what, yeah, what, yeah, is, yeah, tele- yeah. what is telemedicine? Telemedicine is really use of technologies to uh, connect a, a patient and a physician or other healthcare provider mm-hmm. who are separated by distance. That's really what that term yeah. means. And it can really encompass a number of different technologies. You know, one, the most common uh, technology is synchronous two-way audiovisual sure. telecommunications gopro which is sort of like yeah, skype yeah. skype, yeah, skype, right? skype it it's yeah. like skype your doctor mm-hmm. in, in some ways you know meaning that you can see your physician your physician can see you and you can speak and it's happening in real time and there's a mm-hmm. video link um
1: okay you know why i think that's fascinating it, because it's not just remoteness that where this is of, of big value but it's also by specialty in other words when you call a, te- a telemedicine hub And somebody's going to triage you and say, get Dr. Koenig on the phone. This, Doc koenig Koenig's got to see this guy.
3: Right. You know? Right. And that's what we're doing for stroke. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I'm a neurologist. I'm a neurointensivist, as we talked about. I'm a stroke specialist. And so for the last four and a half years, uh, I've been working on building a telemedicine project um, for stroke in the state. And so Queens currently functions as the hub. Yeah. Um, and we service seven hospitals in the state currently. Okay,
1: now, when you talk about that being the hub, the, the first question that comes to mind is, all right, when somebody's got a, a hole in their leg and you can see it, this is great. But what about knowing a little bit about this guy's history? How quickly can the technology that you're using look into my files, I've already granted access, and, and say, well, you know, back in '03, this guy had this, this, this broke. Here's, here's what he's got today. That's, that's what fascinates me.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. That's actually a very, very informed question about you know one of the. I'm just guessing, Doc. I mean, I'm just throwing out there. You fill in the. Box. I don't think so. Yeah, you yeah. seem really well informed. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a very informed question mm. about uh, the technological hurdles and, and some of the negative sides and mm-hmm. criticisms of telemedicine. Is that if you don't have access to the electronic medical record of the patient and you can't document in their chart, then that information may not be carried forward. And mm-hmm. so the. Um, the, the good thing about working on telemedicine now in 2016 is that those other sides of the equation are being solved. Gotcha. You know? And what I mean by that is the electronic m- medical record is being merged mm-hmm. in the state. And so e- if I see a patient who's a Kaiser patient or a patient at HPH, Hawaii Pacific sure. Health, like yeah. Straub, for example, um, at Queens, I can actually access their electronic medical record um, through Queens electronic medical record. I-,
1: I know that there was this huge cry about... Uh, identity theft, about safety and everything else. And I do know that the medical profession is saying we need this. So somebody in the technology department work out to keep it encrypted or, 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 or bulletproof because we need this stuff and that excuse is not a good one. We need to have this stuff.
3: Yeah, it's not, it's not really us who needs it, it's you who needs yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, I need it. So I want my
1: guy, my doctor, or or in this case, the guy in the emergency room who I don't know, to have everything he
3: needs to help me. That's right. I mean, yeah. as, a, as a patient, you really want the physician who's taking care of you to have mm-hmm. a complete set of information.
1: Okay, so how are we? I mean, you know, since you've been in it the last, you know, four or five years, and and, and obviously uh, need a little tweak here and a little tweak there, now you're saying that you can get it from... Competitors, you know, from other hospitals and everything else. Uh, if you had a, uh, here's the Matt Koenig wish list. What would it be to keep to to make it even better and quicker and faster?
3: Well, I think uh, it's really not a technology problem at this mm-hmm. point. You know, being at a we tech, got the technology. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah. everybody everybody in their granny has has Facebook and sure. Skype, and yeah. they have all this stuff in their phone, and and you're doing online banking this way, and so why can't you see your doctor this way? Yeah, and from a patient perspective, that kind of on-demand healthcare. You know, or sort of the Uber concept yeah. of 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 healthcare.
1: But I think what you need to know is that the person at the other end of your inquiry is the right person. In other words, I'm the patient. If I go online to uh, tell them, I want to make sure that I've vetted out who who this is. Who am I hooking up with? And in the case of Queens, no problem. Hook me up. But let's talk about what you know. What pitfalls there might be to have somebody that
3: didn't know 100 percent what they were doing? Are there scammers in this? Um, I. Are there scammers in this? Yeah. I haven't encountered scammers yet. Good. I mean, the, t- yeah. the technology is still t- too young, I think, to really have the scammers come out of the woodwork yet. But I think that's where the Uber analogy comes yeah. in. Yeah, you know that really that yeah talk um, about
1: that the the hue and cry about this is really misunderstood. These guys are geniuses, right? They came up with something. Why didn't I think of that?
3: Yeah. So so it's so it's 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 viable in your field too. I mean, you know? doctors get reviewed on Yelp. It's really yeah. it's really yeah. kind of interesting. You can Google yourself and find your review on Yelp. Um, <laughs> And so, Say, I thought I fixed that guy. I guess he may, he's, guess he's mad at me. Even if yeah, the medical yeah, profession yeah. wanted to bury our heads in the sand and mm-hmm. ignore social media and the yeah. internet and Uber and you know and and on demand, everything by mobile apps, it's coming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's coming. And well, so, let, let's
1: make sure, uh, Doctor Koenig, people understand this thing, and that is that uh, you want it, and it's there. And and I don't know that people know, because I need to know. How much of it can actually be done now? For instance, I erroneously asked or or su- or surmised before we started talking that uh, that it was like, okay, you 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 look at the hole in my leg, but you're really going to tell me to come in. What you're saying, no, that it's now so so specific, you can actually treat virtually treat me. Can you can you prescribe me a drug? Can you can you show me or help
3: me how to close the wound? What can you do? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So. You can't do everything by telemedicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are still, obviously, a lot of the medical profession requires touching the patient, laying yeah. your hands on the patient, feeling a problem, mm-hmm. um, and, and that does not lend itself to telemedicine.
1: I, you know, but be careful because, you know, you're talking to an old dude here, and I wouldn't have said you could do what you can so far. So I'm thinking pretty soon there's going to be a probe on my computer, and I can feel myself, and you, I can ultrasound my, my
3: kidney, and you can tell me what's up. Again, very informed, very insi- very, very, insi- very insightful, yeah. very insightful. I think that's coming. I mean, mm-hmm. I really do think that ultrasound is going to be, you know, an integral part of the physical. Yeah. Ex- you're not going to be taught physical examination skills in mm-hmm. medical school anymore. You're going to be taught ultrasonography, yeah. you know. And I do think that's coming, honestly. Um, well, those
1: that listen to our Healthy Veins, Healthy Legs program with Dr. Kistner uh, know that this – that the Venus doctors use this thing; it is the main diagnostic tool, and now they're in all ERs and everything else. Even that technology, even though it's you know you know decades and decades old, it's been totally improved and modernized. And it's like, how could you live without one? Yeah,
3: absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely.
1: Okay, get to the point where um, where the you know uh, the professional is either by telehealth, uh, by by uh, telemedicine, uh, being able to. Do the elimination necessary to find out what really is wrong with me? Because I don't know. I just I'm I'm hurt and I'm I'm in pain. What's wrong with me?
3: Well, let's go back to stroke because mm-hmm. um, I think that's a, a really relevant Absolutely. example. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm proud to say that uh, we talked about the clot buster medication mm-hmm. TPA, which is the medic the medication uh, used to treat stroke patients. Of the about 200 patients who got treated last year in the state of Hawaii, we treated a quarter of them by telemedicine. That's fa- that's. Phenomenal, isn't yeah. it? really, so so yeah. it's the future is now. We're mm. doing this right now. We are
1: taking I, care of patients I, I do by telemedicine. That, I, I'm sorry, if, uh, uh, Dr. Koenig. I do know just from, like I said, my my dear friend, Dr. Dr. Kistner. Sometimes travel is not indicated when you've got venous conditions. And and however, now they're saying, okay, if your doc knows, he can get you a compression hose or stockage or something. You can travel. That's because where you're going, somebody's going to be able to know what's the matter with you. Should something happen? Should you get a
3: clot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many of those clots end up in the brain from the legs? Uh, not too many of them, but there is a mechanism by which that can happen. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there are about 20 percent of the population as a whole between the chambers of the heart that we call patent foramen ovale or PFO, mm-hmm. um, and you can form blood clots in your legs. The not the small veins, but the yeah. larger, uh, called DVT, deep venous thrombosis. Deep vein. Yeah, that's a medical term that I'm very familiar with. DVT. Okay. <laughs> Those can mm-hmm. travel, uh, mm-hmm. so most of those go to the lungs, and mm-hmm. they cause a very, very serious condition called pulmonary embolus. Um, but in that 20% of the population who has a hole between the chambers of the heart, it can actually bypass the lungs and go to the brain. Mm-hmm. And that is a relatively common cause of stroke in young people.
1: See, you, what you're saying earlier in the program, when it gets up there, you're, I mean, it's, it's the damage that's done by a stroke is... It never is totally reversible. You're going to have a, you're going to suffer some loss
3: if you don't treat it mm-hmm. and you don't restore blood flow to the brain. No. Then there will be permanent injury to the brain.
1: What about the carrot at the end, in front of the horse? Why, why would I be able to maintain and take your advice for the post, you know, surgery treatment to get better or to be able to handle things a little bit better? You know, I mean, people want to know, oh,
3: woe is me. Am I done now, or what can I do to get back some semblance of normalcy? Right, the, good, the good news is that even if there's a, an injury to the brain that's permanent, that functionally most patients do recover to some extent mm-hmm. after a stroke. Some of them recover quite well um and and rehabilitation is getting better and better the rehab hospital of the pacific and i can plug them cuz oh, I, yeah. I don't work there, we love those guys right? yeah, yeah. i don't work there i'm not on the payroll but um you know the rehab hospital of the pacific has uh a number of good uh new technologies mm-hmm. including uh partial weight bearing suspension where they kind of take the weight off the patient and allow you to start walking when you have some movement yeah yeah and uh, they also do some constraint um uh, induced therapy where Basically, if you're weak in one arm, they actually will constrain the good arm to force you to yeah. use the bad arm.
1: I've heard that in in uh, in, in uh, ophthalmologists and other guys, if you have one eye that's dominant, they'll put a, a patch over it and
3: make you use the other eye for That's right, yeah, same yeah. same concept. Yeah, and and yeah. that's that plasticity issue mm-hmm. we talked
1: about. You know, that being said, I, I wanna go back, we talk about a neuro huddle, uh, and we talk about some of the, the traumatic injuries people get in, in, in concussions, and particularly in football. I, I want to make sure that people understand that there is sort of maybe a primer of what somebody can do in advance of those sort of activities. Like you talked about how to diagnose, not how to diagnose, but how to read the possibility of that you might be having a stroke. But what about uh, what can somebody, is there anything somebody can do to say, I'm going to stroke proof myself? Because what, you, what I got indicated before is no. If you you know, who knows who's
3: going to get one. Uh, stroke-proof themselves or, yeah, or, or, yes. tra- or trauma-proof themselves? Well,
1: the, well, trauma-proof yourself would be very careful in everything you do. You know, <laughs> We're all going to be traumatized. But, no, I, I, I want to know if there are things that, that we can do in advance of that. Clarice, you, you, you want to know too, right?
2: So, so I'm actually really curious because, um, you know, you're talking about telehealth, telemedicine, and I, and for for Hawaii, mm-hmm. we are leading, we know this, in terms of the athletic trainers on the field getting all of the trainers Um, to each of the schools in the public school system. And so when you start talking about telehealth, telemedicine, I immediately start wondering, how do we get that? Yeah, because your antenna
1: went up. I want to talk about that as well, because what you said, uh, Doc, earlier is everybody's got a device nowadays. Well, more and more, there's going to be diagnostic equipment and the helmet is going to be able to transmit to a piece of equipment on the sideline that Bobby Boyd just had a hit and he's not functioning well. Get him out of the game. Let's talk about the next level of that. How soon is it going to be where there's tele telehealth available on the sidelines
3: of football or any other event? Well, that technology already exists. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really gets into a to a, a type of telehealth that we call m health or mobile health. Mm-hmm. And that's really where you get into your Fitbits and your devices, your Bluetooth-connected devices that are basically collecting physiological data from you mm-hmm. at all times. Even your cell phone is collecting yeah. physiological data from you at yeah, all times. Yeah, it's time. amazing,
1: and it knows where you are.
3: And yeah. that can become part of the the, the medical record. That mm-hmm. can be actually integrated into the electronic medical record, and and you can uh, analyze that data, and you can create alerts, and all this is on the horizon. Yeah, something. and I
1: think also I want to say this, but uh, because today's program, by the way, at GallagherLaw.com, which I haven't even told you about, it's craft. This is I'm not soliciting your business. This is not a call to action. But if you want to find out what's going on in the neurohuddle and other things, go to gallagherlaw, a l i h e r Law.com and find out more about this because i think that what we're talking about here is the the advantage of really taking and, and embracing all of this technology stuff and say you know a school says well we can't afford it well really uh what about the fact doc that some of what you're talking about this equipment is going to arm people like attorneys and others that are going to build a case against somebody based on all of this technology that they can glean out of what happened to this person whether it be on a field of uh of play or
3: or in just Walking down the street and getting hurt. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, as you collect more and more physiological data, it's, it's more information in the medical record. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, you, that's certainly a good thing because then you can automate your alarms to, to point out, hey, things are heading in the wrong di- direction with this individual. Can you and, tell
1: particularly
3: if they've been there before?
1: Hey, this, what's happening right now is the same thing that happened to them in 2013. Let's, uh, let's, let's have them stop that right now.
3: Right, and, th- and that's really the goal is to be able to collect, you know, sort of that big data approach, you know, meaning this person is trending in the wrong direction, alert, alert, mm-hmm. and then you can head off that is, you know, something yes. like stroke potentially or, or, or recurrent traumatic injuries to the brain. You can head them off before they happen, and and that is the goal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly from healthcare professionals, there's some, some trepidation, you know, among providers. The more data you collect, that's just maybe more data. Yeah, I was going to say there's you. another
1: thing here, and you might want to address this for a minute, because... I know that what you said before about telehealth is that there are some things where you have to put your hands on my body and see what that lump is and all of that stuff. And do you sometimes think that, hey, wait a minute, before I fully embrace this new technological development, how much time is it going to take me to do this and what am I going to get out of it? In other words, do I really want to minutia minutia this or, or can I get salient points in there somehow quicker so that I can read them?
3: It's a great question. And and it kind of goes back to you when you asked me what my wish list would be. Yeah, like yeah, for give me the wish list. Yeah. My wish list is actually not the technologies, because I think the technologies are there. The wish list is really from the pro- to, the workflows to bring the providers in. Right. Mm-hmm. Because as a physician, especially if you train, say, before I trained, you know, if you've been in practice longer yeah. than yeah. I have, you have a certain workflow and you, you know, you you, you don't necessarily want to deviate from that because and there's actually a lot of good reasons to, to maintain your normal workflows. It mm-hmm. limits errors. And you know, the more you deviate from usual practices, the more prone you are to potentially having errors. And so physicians, I think, naturally are very conservative in their practices. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily want to change how they do their job. And that, for me, as a telehealth director for Queens, trying to facilitate telemedicine projects has definitely been a barrier let's talk
1: about how maybe sometimes when you talk about that as director now put that hat on for a second so we can say all right how quickly do we do we vehicularize somebody in other words they they get a hold of us with a telehealth problem and and the more the the doc gets into me at the other end you say you know what this guy we got to get to this guy this guy we don't want to scare him to death and scare him into getting hurt but we we, want to this guy needs immediate attention so let's go to plan b
3: Right, and, and that's, um, I mean, certainly if you take it one step further and you look at um, patients on neighbor islands, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A lot of patients on neighbor islands. Or up dip- in the country,
1: up in the hill, you know? Yeah, sure. or, you
3: yeah. Know, or even yeah. just you don't want to fight the traffic to come yeah. into Honolulu and you're, <laughs> yeah. you're outside of the yeah. city.
1: This is no, no, no offense meant to you folks to male Lani, but that's what's
3: happening, you know, <laughs> right. I, I, especially in the morning. Right, and so the, there's an access to health care, mm-hmm. particularly subspecialty health care, mm-hmm. you know, things like, like I do or the neurosurgeons yeah. that I work with do. Um, patients on the neighbor islands in particular have limited access to certain subspecialties. Um, and I'm sure that's not news to anybody mm-hmm. listening to the program. But by the same token, you don't want every patient who needs a subspecialist to have to fly over here. That's a real burden on people to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's really where telehealth uh, becomes very important. Do, do you think,
1: Dr. Koenig, that they're going to be... Uh, guys like yourself and gals like yourself coming through medical school that choose to be in that seat, that I, this, is, this is what I want to do. I want to help as many people every day as I can to find out what's the matter with them and then get them to their, where they need to go to get treatment.
3: I think so, yeah, mm. I think so. I mean, it's sort of like an air traffic control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know,
1: hasn't in, in, in many ways, your internal internist guy or your, your, your primary care physician, isn't that sort of what they're turning into in some respects?
3: It is, and really Affordable Care Act is, mm-hmm. is kind of moving things in that direction of where um, it's not just fee-for-service. It's not good enough to just take really good care of the patient who's lucky enough to walk through your door. Sure, It's about maintaining the health of a population. And that's really how I view yeah. what I do. Well,
1: even though it's not germane to the conversation that we have at Gallagher Law or at the foundation, I want to also apply the same thing to we have, you know, chronic homeless, and we have some of these people have chronic diseases life-threatening diseases that they're not getting treated because they just can't be and i know that at queens there's a a big effort to make sure that somebody moves there's a recent um from what i understand a recent agreement made with queens and with the ihs to get somebody from a bed in the hospital to a bed at ihs where they can continue talk about all of the stakeholders that are involved in these traumatic injuries and chronic chronic conditions
3: yeah it's sort of that's a natural continuation of the conversation of how do you, how do you best take care of your community of people, mm-hmm. right, in a, in a way that's equitable um, but also allows patients to have access to subspecialty care like Queens provides. And as I'm sure you're aware, you know, the hospitals, mm-hmm. especially this this winter, have been very full, not just Queens but really all yeah, the everywhere. hospitals. Sure. Um, and there, you know, really are limited services in the community, and so we have to balance the need to um, have patients have access to the emergency room, have the hospital not be on divert, have patients have access to the subspecialty services like our ICU, but not have patients uh, discharged from the hospital too quickly into the community without a safety net. You know, what also
1: came to mind a while ago, and this was, we dodged the bullet, it looks like, on the Big Island with the dengue fever. And I guess the Zika virus is not as huge as it could have been. But talk about how any one of those little things happening, they all of a sudden pour hundreds, if not thousands of people in an emergency room make things kind of tough.
3: Absolutely. I'm still very concerned about yeah, Zika. Yeah. I'm, I'm concerned about Zika. Uh, you know, I think Puerto Rico is, is going to have a lot of Zika cases in the next year. Well,
1: what I'm worried about, maybe you can expand on that because we're going to run out of time, but I want to make sure that we hit on this for just a second. And that is, and I can see Clarice on this, uh, with the Zika, there are the, the big problem with the Zika is not for most people that get Zika don't get really too bad, but a pregnant woman, that's another thing. And we're talking about something that is passed on to this baby that may be it, it, not fixable.
3: Right, so, so, that's, so the big risk is, is pregnant women in mm-hmm. the first trimester being infected. The second big one, and what's very relevant for me as a neurointensivist, is, is Guillain-Barre syndrome. And Guillain-Barre mm-hmm. syndrome, as you may know, is an acute paralysis, mm-hmm. and it can be very, very severe. It's an inflammatory um, disease of the nerves, and it can result in people being literally completely paralyzed and dependent on a breathing machine, and it can last for weeks mm-hmm. or months.
1: Uh, and Clarice, I mean, not that we're out there for Gallagher Law today looking for business, but isn't kind of scary? I mean, there's a lot of things out there.
2: Oh, there is definitely. Um, and I'm sorry if I just wanted to, um, before we conclude the show, if we could just come back to the neurotrauma registry and the importance of that. I just wanted to hit on that. Yeah, you're gonna have to. You're
1: gonna have to give me the best soundbite you can mm-hmm. on that one because we're flat out of time. But this is the most important piece of of data collecting information uh, that you can get.
3: Absolutely, and the, and the reality is that we don't have enough information about people who are living long-term after strokes and traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know how many people are hospitalized, and we know the immediate outcomes, but how people's lives are impacted long-term by stroke and traumatic brain injury. And that's why it's really important to join the Neurotrauma Registry. Yeah, and
1: get up there and give the information that they need completely uh, anonymous you know you can you, you don't have to worry about anybody knocking on your door but we need you need you need this data don't you
3: absolutely yeah. and the state needs the data
1: I going to talk about that again another time see we are already run out of time but uh, the, those of you that joined us late and didn't hear Dr. Matthew Koenig is uh, at the Queens Medical Center right now medical director of telehealth that's just one of the hats he wears and we're certainly glad you got to air out a couple of them with us today thank you for being here and we'll be back again next time for the Gallagher Law Hour. And remember, if you want to know what's going on generally at Gallagher, just check it out at gallagher.com. That's G-A-L-I-H-E-R dot com. See you next time.
0: Well, that's our program for today, and we certainly hope you'll come back next week for our next episode. In the meanwhile, to learn more about Team Gallagher, log on to gallagherlaw.com. That's G-A-L-I-H-E-R law com.